Hello and welcome to Farmarama. This month, we hear from herb growers and suppliers about the opportunities for growing herbs in the UK. We have the first in a series of reports from Jubilee Farm in Northern Ireland, offering a Christian perspective on agriculture and the environment. We take a visit to Humble by Nature, a tenant farm in the Welsh Wye Valley run by TV presenter Kate Humble. And finally, we hear from an artisan pasta producer in Italy. One of the most exciting panels at last month's Oxford Veal Farming Conference was all about growing and selling herbs in the UK. It was exciting to learn that there's a real demand for good quality UK-grown herbs and that more growers are finding ways to grow commercially here on a relatively small scale. We caught up with a few of the panellists. Helen Kearney is a herb producer and medical herbalist. She farms in Devon where she's a tenant of the Ecological Land Cooperative and she makes a living from a range of activities involving the herbs she grows, including seeing patients, bulk supply, and selling over-the-counter products. She shared some tips and words of encouragement for new growers looking to enter the market in the UK. So the reason that people aren't growing more herbs in the UK, um, I think because it's mainly been focused on culinary herbs and the medicinal side of things. There are some herbalists that have access to land, but it's rare for a herbalist to actually be living on a small holding. The skills to grow those herbs, the medicinal herbs, just haven't really been developed in the UK. I don't know why. It's much more common in the US and Australia, maybe because there's bigger land masses there, so people have more access to farms. Um, The markets, it's cheaper for me to buy dandelion leaves from Eastern Europe than it is to grow and pick and dry them myself, for example. So just the bulk herb side of things, that's more complex. Value-adding is the way to make money from plants, and so bulk growing of herbs just hasn't really been developed in the UK. At the, moment. Uh, the quality is really important, so um, you want to get herbs to produce really good growth so they've got the active constituents in them and they're not degraded in any way. So the real challenge is when you come to process them, you need to pick them on a dry day, preferably before midday, because once the sun's gone onto the herbs, then if you brush up, for example, against a bush of lavender and you get that lovely aroma, that's the volatile oils being released and you want them to be trapped in the plant as much as possible. So you pick in the cool and dry. And then once you've picked them, obviously that plant starts to degrade. So you need to very quickly process them or start to dry them because you're trying to capture the maximum amount of the active constituents within that plant. The herbs that I produce are the best quality possible because I'm picking them when they're absolutely ready to be picked. I don't use any mechanical harvesting tools so everything's hand-picked, hand-processed and that means I can buy an organic dandelion leaf from Eastern Europe but it just won't be the same quality as something that I can grow and produce. Um, And when I'm drying things, I'm drying things in small batches. They're not being, we haven't got the sun and solar dryers in this country So in other countries, for example, calendula or marigold, 
the petals end up very pale yellow and the petals that I'm growing and producing are bright vivid orange because I'm small batch growing and I'm not using a solar dryer so the heat that the flowers are getting to isn't the same and they're not getting bleached out in the same way. So the viability of what we're doing is we have a planning condition that we have to show that we're financially viable because we apply for permanent permission to live on our land this year. So we have to pass the two tests, the financial test, the functional need test. And the financial test, we have to meet our household needs through profit of the business. And that's a challenge, but I'm a medical herbalist, so I've got different income streams that I'm using to achieve that. And that's selling medicines to patients, selling the -the over-the-counter products, as well as selling the bulk herbs. Jim Twine is Managing Director of the Organic Herb Trading Company that sources and supplies 500 different types of herbs and botanicals for a variety of different uses. They've got a couple of acres of their own land, but for the most part, they source from suppliers around the world. Jim thinks there are definitely opportunities out there for UK growers. There's opportunities for a significant number of products that are either problem ingredients for us, um, like marigolds, where there may be a history, even in the organic sector, of a background level um, of pesticides, or where there's ingredients that uh, brands want um, a story behind them, and particularly like the idea of those being grown in the UK. So there's a number of different categories that those would fall into. What it's also probably true to say is that products that we've sourced quite often that have been fair wild from or wild harvested from southern Europe also represent an area where uh, growers could produce those in the UK or harvest them and supply them to us in volume. So elderflower, field mint, dandelion leaf, nettle leaf, some of these would also be wild harvested, um, dandelion root and red clover. And then the last category is really um, herbs or botanicals that are grown either in Europe or America where our guesses, the costs of production, are relatively similar to the UK. And as a result, again, it represents an opportunity where, where growers in the UK can compete. So oat flowering tops, cornflower, lemon balm, echinacea, skullcup, catnip, valerian root uh, and lavender. The, the reason that they're problem herbs is that despite the fact that we know our growers are not in any way trying to uh, break the organic standards, the issue is nearly always with a background low level of pesticide residue contamination. And very often that's as a result of spray drift or it may be a legacy pesticide that's in the watercourse or it may simply be as a result of um, contamination caused um, by unusual circumstances. For example, a flood that then, uh, as a result of the runoff, causes issues on the organic organic grower's land. And those problem herbs, spices and botanicals, where there has been that background level of of pesticides or herbicides, is, is almost exclusively outside the UK, rather than any of the production that we've got based in the UK or our experience of dealing with other UK growers. So there's probably two kind of fundamental challenges to the growth of the um, organic herb market in the UK. The first is um, people being able to have enough drying capacity to do a really good job of drying and then processing the herbs that they may want to supply us or other businesses within the um, value chain. 
And then the other issue alongside that is that if there is a problem, so for example, a low-level background a level of salmonella contamination, how do you fix that? Uh, and at the moment, the way in which that would be dealt with is through steam sterilisation. And there aren't, as far as we know, any steam sterilisation units that are willing to take small quantities um, of product uh, and steam sterilise them to reduce that background level of, of microbial problems. And what there certainly isn't is, um, is anywhere that's organically certified, as far as we're aware. So as things stand at the moment, our solution is to get things steamed in transit on the way to organic herb trading if we identify a problem. One of the things that would be brilliant and would be great from a sustainability perspective would be if we could link up someone with a massive cold storage unit where the hot air is basically being wasted and build a dryer alongside that because that would be a really environmentally sound way of harnessing that energy and putting it to really good use. I don't, I mean, we've got our own small-scale dryer, and I suspect that the vast majority of the growers that are involved in the session have got some kind of um, drying facility on site. Making it commercially viable and making it stack up, again, you really want to be able to do that on scale, and we're not aware of anybody doing that, certainly within the organic sector at the moment, in the UK. We have one more interview from a speaker on the same Herbs panel for you but you'll need to head over to our SoundCloud page to listen. There, you can hear Alice Bettany talking about her beautiful herb gardens and introducing a completely different approach to selling herbs, a CSA herbal box scheme model. As well as the interview with Alice, this month we've also posted a diary from Joel Rodker, updating us on his progress setting up Harvest Barn Market Garden. Johnny Hansen is an environmentalist who's involved in setting up Northern Ireland's first community-supported agriculture scheme at Jubilee Farm. Johnny reports from Jubilee Farm's first community volunteer day and provides a perspective on farming that I think is the first for us on Farmarama. I'm here in the classroom at Jubilee Farm where we're having our first community volunteer day and as part of that we've had a short service of dedication as we begin breaking ground in clearing this overgrown wall garden. I'm here with the Reverend Gabriel Farquhar who before she was a Presbyterian minister ran a community horticulture project in Dublin. Gabriel I just wanted to ask you about what you felt Christianity has to offer in terms of an agricultural and environmental ethic for the 21st century. Thank you Johnny. Um, well first of all what Christianity has to offer goes way, way back to the beginning of time. God, when he created the world, he made humankind last and then gave us the responsibility of caring for the earth. Um, and so it isn't a choice, it is our responsibility to do so. So as Christians, if we forget that and concentrate on all sorts of theological issues and think that they only are important, we're forgetting what God has asked us to do as we live in this world and, and through this life. Also, the whole idea of rest, um, rest not just for ourselves, but for the land, caring for the land, it was all part of his creation. 
And even on top of that, uh, and I just love this part in the Old Testament where they talk about uh, leaving the, the uh, crop around the edge of the field, as it were, for the stranger, for the widow, for the orphan. So thinking of everybody, caring for everybody. So that's the Old Testament part of it all. And the New Testament, the same. Gabriel, churches are often quite large landowners. They often have land immediately around their site, or sometimes they, they own quite large estates and the like. In terms of putting that ethic into practice, what contribution do you think churches have, given, for example, that here we are at Jubilee Farm, which is itself in the grounds of an estate owned by the Sisters of the Cross and Passion? I think, first of all, it, it's great that this project is now able to happen here and to bring this walled garden to life, just like the walled garden that we worked in, in uh, Old Hallows in Dublin. And it just gives such pleasure to people, such well-being and better for health. The churches, the churches, if they're sitting on land, are being totally irresponsible to what God wants them to do. Um, sometimes they forget, they think, oh, we can let it out for profit. And yes, they can, and I suppose if they let it out, at least somebody's going to work the land, which is good. But to be a little bit more creative and to use it for allowing others, uh, a bit like this, um, to, to use the land and, and to guide the people who, who maybe don't have the resources, don't have access to, to uh, work in a garden, to touch a plant, to touch the soil. There are all sorts of creative ways, or in turn, to, to let it be a place where animals can stay, and again, children can be brought from towns, or in a town sometimes, again, plenty of land around churches open it up and let people enjoy it as it should have been. We have a project in Banikari where uh, we brought our young people to Malawi and the following year we brought a group back from Malawi um, and we all worked together, our young people in the village from the different churches in Banikari and the young people from Malawi and we made what is now known as the Malawi Garden. And that was back in 2001, and it's still going, and the churches are responsible each for, for two beds, and they maintain it. And if one isn't able to, they then look after the other person. So working together, and it's beautiful. Thanks, Gabriel, for that inspiring example. And just as we end our report from Jubilee Farm, here we work with Christians of all, all denominations, which in Northern Ireland, in a post-conflict context we feel is really important but crucially we also welcome people of all backgrounds and belief to this place so that we can create space for people and for nature to flourish together. And now we meet Andrea Cavalieri whose family have been producing pasta in Italy for generations by what he calls the delicate method we met him at We Feed the Planet, a slow food event in Milan celebrating young farmers, which was the setting for episode three. This was two and a half years ago now, a long time ago, but I can honestly still taste that pasta. When I was a, a little child, I used to go to our factory. I, I was five years old, and I, um, my game was to um, to go in the in the warehouse where we have the raw material and to try the different variety. 
So for me to not cook, just just semolina, and was so funny to understand the difference in terms of taste of chewiness. So it was so it's the raw material that remember me when I was a child. My family, I mean, continue to to produce, but it's not sufficient for our. So that's why we we try to convince uh, new farmers, new farmers to to grow not the commercial variety, but that special variety for us to continue, I mean, this, this tradition. Uh, it's very important for us uh, not to buy the commercial wheat, but to, uh, to visit it, to decide with our uh, farmers which variety um, to grow in which soil, I mean, and in which area, because every area has a special vocation for that variety. It's like the wine, the grape. If you produce like a Chardonnay in the south of Italy, you won't see that bouquet, that uh, fruit taste that the Chardonnay can have in the, in the north of, of Italy, in, in Veneto, for example. So the wheat is the same. You can, you can find the, the right soil for the right variety. So we, we really are very connected. So we don't buy just the commercial wheat, but we are connected with our farmers. Well, really, I don't have just one favorite shape. I, I really love to, to change, and it depends from the seasonal raw material we have. For example, when we have fresh vegetable in June, for example, I prefer like an organic fusilli, organic all wheat, in order to, to fill the taste of the organic pasta, but also the fresh vegetable with extra virgin olive oil. During the autumn, for example, that we begin to have ragu. For example, the wheel, our crazy wheel, is perfect with meat ragu, for example. And when we, when it's the time of, uh, I know, zucchini, for example, I like the linguine zucchini and prawns. It's perfect. So it, I don't have just a, a, a favorite shape, but I, I love to change, and it depends from, I mean, from the recipe. We hope you enjoy listening to Farmerama as much as we enjoy making it. A lot of work goes into each episode, and we're always hugely grateful for support. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, or if you know of someone who you think might be, please do get in touch. And you can do that through our website, farmerama.co. Humble by Nature is a tenant farm in the Wye Valley in Wales, run by the TV presenter Kate Humble. Running a sustainable farm these days is so often about finding creative ways to supplement the actual farming. This is something they're all too aware of at Humble by Nature. It's a place with lots going on. They offer courses in farming, cookery and outdoor skills. And you can also rent a holiday cottage or host an event. And they're diversifying to explore aquaponics. I certainly find it difficult to remember the difference between hydroponics and aquaponics. Aquaponics is the one with the fish. We spoke to Becca on the farm to hear about the work she's been doing there. Aquaponics is basically using the waste from fish to feed plants. 
So um, fish are kept in tanks. We've got three large tanks and fish obviously eat and poo in the water and the dirty water is sucked from the bottom of the tanks and pumped to each grow bed. So we have 12 grow beds and within the grow beds is a media we call leper, which is um, an expanded clay. It's basically like a light gravel, a bit like pumice, but it's made of clay. And it's got a very high surface area. So beneficial bacteria live on that surface area and consume the ammonia in the fish waste. So as we know, uh, animal waste um, begins to smell very quickly and produces ammonia. And that ammonia is consumed by the beneficial bacteria and converted into nitrates, which as we all know, um, is what is used chemical or man-made to produce lots of green, lush green growth in plants. So that nitrate um, is taken up by the plants and this means you can grow lots of um, herbs, salads, things like that mainly um, in our greenhouse very fast because it's a nutrient-rich water and um, nutrient-rich water that's being um, pumped into grow beds and it's always available. The plants don't need to send out a huge root um, area. All the nutrients are there for their taking. They can take as much as they want. So they grow very fast. And in turn, the plant's roots clean the solids and the ammonia or nitrates from the water and the water is returned clean to the fish. So it's a closed loop. This means there's no danger of any nutrient leaching or runoff into our environment, into the rivers. Um, so it's a totally closed system. Aquaponics isn't going to replace traditional farming. It's not going to replace livestock, uh, replace livestock farming. Our farm is <coughs> exposed. It's on top of a hill on a kind of basin plateau. So we get waterlogged and when it rains a lot, um, the water table's like mint under the ground. I think it's clay. It's really, really not the ideal place to grow crops. It's great for sheep and cattle, but to grow vegetables, is, it's not an easy place to grow. Um, aquaponics ideally is suited to urban growing and to be combined with industrial um, growing. So having worked there for three years now and discovered and made lots of mistakes and learned lots of things, I think it's ideally suited to, if we could start designing systems to fit in within either domestic or um, agricultural or industrial setups so we can utilize the waste heat from humans from livestock to heat greenhouses so you could have um, aquaponic systems on the sides of buildings inside blocks of flats or um, um, cities with blocks of um, the office blocks uh, or if they were combined in conjunction with cattle barns so they could use the heat in the winter from the cattle that type of thing um, it would increase the sustainability of the systems hugely and then you're utilizing the waste streams be it waste heat or um, some systems can use maybe the manure um, in their system to increase the, the um, nutrition of, of the water um, so I mentioned there's no danger of runoff from the system because it's a closed loop. Um, it also enables you to maximise what you can grow in a single area. So our system is 
gone, Hannah, it's quite meat as it is. <laughs> but um, we're growing fish, protein, food and vegetables in a small area. Um, and because there's so much concern about the future of food and soil, um, it's just it's a way of producing food on a small scale and a lot of food. Um, and you can, the more you feed the fish, obviously, the more they produce, the more nutrients in the food, so the faster the plants grow. So it's kind of everything you do in the system affects everything else. And I mentioned it's not going to replace traditional farming. We can't grow potatoes in the system or carrots. We can't grow root crops because a it's too damp. Um, our system floods and drains every half an hour, um, which is just a bit too wet for those root crops. And because we're growing in the lecker, which is like a gravelly type thing, roots can get a bit deformed. Some people have experimented and had some success with the root crops. Um, I've had success, huge success this summer with ginger actually. So because that grows on kind of just the top few inches, it's managing to push out the gravel out of the way so it's not being too deformed. And because our system is so warm, um, so full of nutrients and water, it's just growing like crazy. So it's more those special, what's seen as exotic or um, what's normally imported to us. We can grow these um, generally imported high carbon foods um, quite simply from, yeah, kind of 20 miles away um, in the system with very minimal input really. Um, our, our main input is electricity. Um, and we're working with two, uh, we're working with Swansea University and another company to develop more sustainable fish food that doesn't doesn't use um, fish caught from the sea, which is then grown up, uh, ground up, um, and used to feed fish. Because there is, um, I think someone worked out that we're actually using more fish from the sea to feed the fish we eat, and um, we're actually, yeah, the amount of food fish the sea is more than we're actually growing so it just doesn't make sense to continue that um that system but there's all sorts of different ways of doing aquaponics um our system uh we got funding from uh, the community gardens who have got a, a plot here and um and from the welsh government so we've got a lot of technology so it's almost like a, a showcase of what you can do yeah. But you can make an aquaponics out of an old plastic barrel, cut off the top there, turn it over, drill some holes in and just have a little pump and have just a direct small cycle. So it doesn't have to be high tech and it doesn't have to be complicated. You just have to know about kind of plants and a little bit about fish helps <laughs> and just about systems and ecosystems and how, how it all works really. Something all of you can do to help Farmerama is to write a review on iTunes. It really does make it easier for other people to find us. And please do share the podcast with your farmer friends. We're always delighted to gain new listeners. We're also keen to hear what you like, what you don't like, and what we can do to make Farmerama both useful and enjoyable for you. Farmerama is produced by me, Joe, Katie, who's presenting with me, Abby's currently in Chile for her yearly visit to the family farm, uh, but has still somehow managed to find the time to help us put this episode together. Also thanks this month to Johnny from Jubilee Farm for his report, 
We're very much looking forward to hearing more from the farm in the coming months. Thanks for listening. See you next month.